Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 123, verses 1 through 4, is the scripture text that we will be looking at for today. It can be found on page 297 of the Blue ESV Bibles. Those are located in the back um, pocket cover of the seat in front of you. And as always, please know that those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not have one. Once again, we'll be reading Psalms 123, verses 1 through 4. A Song of Ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Raven. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are much like this psalmist. That we pray, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, today we fix our eyes towards you, towards your throne in the heavens, and we ask you to look with favor upon us. And Lord, we thank you for the the mercy, the favor, the grace that we have already received from your hand. And God, we receive it as it should be received as a pledge of future provision. So Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for those who may be here that have never looked to your hand for mercy. Maybe they have performed religious activities that they thought were enough, God, only to find that they were empty. They, maybe they have, have rejected you, blaming you for some tragedy or trauma in their life. Lord, I pray that just like you did with me, just like you've done with others in this room, that today would be their day, that you would turn their hearts toward the, the throne of God in heaven, that they would say, have mercy upon us, O God. Have mercy upon us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do all this by your great power. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to hear this word and to receive this text, Lord, as, as only you can do, that you would do a work in us, that we would, our hearts would be prepared like a, a field ready to receive good seed, that we would hear the word of God. Lord, I pray for myself. As God, someone standing in the role of a sower, Lord, that that I would do so effectively and faithfully and unhesitatingly, Lord, I ask you to give me the power, the uh, God, just the the uh, grace that is necessary for me to do this rightly. And so, Lord, I thank you for all this. I I surrender my heart and my tongue to you this morning, and God, I ask you to take charge of the hearts and the ears of my listeners. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So good to have you all here this morning. Glenn, it's good to see you, man. It's a, back from the dead. Look at that. So <laughs> it's great to have you. It's also great to have Natalie's family here today. We're getting you guys a lot. And Natalie just won't play along. So, you know, it's like uh, we're waiting for a baby if you guys hadn't figured that out yet. But 
But uh, I, I got out of my car today. They were coming in. I said, what is taking so long? So, but believe me, if Natalie had her way, this would have been done about a week ago. So anyway, we're praying for you. You're going to make it in this last stretch just great. So, um, And so uh, we've been looking, obviously, at these 15 hymns, was really what they are, from the book of Psalms. The Psalms, as we've mentioned and you may know, is basically it's a songbook. It's a collection of songs that the people of Israel and the Old Covenant would sing together. And these particular songs that we're looking at, these uh, for, uh, the, we call them the Songs of Ascent, or they have been called the Songs of Ascent, and they, they occupy the space between Psalm 120 and 134. They were originally sung by Jewish worshipers on their pilgrimage to God's temple in Jerusalem, and that's where we get the title. They're called Songs of Ascent, since they speak of ascending to the temple, which was located atop Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But they also symbolize God's people, of whom I hope you are a part, ascending from the natural to the supernatural, from earthly to heavenly realities. And this can be seen in our transition from our earthly existence to the eternal one when we die or when Christ comes back to us. But in, in more immediate concern to us is that, that this idea of ascending can be seen in regard to our increase in holiness, our increase in sanctification, as the Bible calls it, as believers in this life also. So the idea is that ascending wasn't limited to ancient Jews. We are all making an ascent, um, you know, as well, though they were originally for those Hebrews on their long journey from wherever they were coming from to the temple in Jerusalem, they matter a lot to us because, as I said, we too are traveling. We're on a journey. We're doing so by faith as believers in Christ Jesus. And this theme pops up uh, several times in the New Testament. Here we see it in 1 Peter 2.11, where Peter, to his audience, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, those two words are really important, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, Peter identifies us, those who are traveling, those who have faith in Christ, he identifies us as sojourners. Now, think about that word. It's a traveler. And, and it signifies those who have not arrived yet. If you've arrived, raise your hand. I'm looking. Okay, Daryl said he has, so, so we'll, we'll ask him to repent and rebaptize him after church. But yeah. um, so, so the idea of sojourners indicates that we haven't arrived yet. We too are on a journey. And none of us, the point that I mean by that is that none of us are exactly who we hope to be or where we long to be. We're being continually and, and progressively transformed by the grace that is working within us. But that's not all he calls us. He doesn't just call us sojourners. He also calls us exiles. Now think about that word. To be an exile, you have to be removed from your home, your, the place where you belong, and put somewhere else. So he calls us exiles. We are not home here nor will we ever be on this planet as it now is or in these bodies as they now are. Amen? 
We look forward to our glorious hope. That's what Christian living is about, is looking forward to something that is coming in power. We look forward to our glorious hope, the return of Christ, and with it, the resurrection of these lowly, busted up, broken bodies, and the full recreation of the entire fallen order of things. What a day that will be. And we journey onward by pursuing God through a life of worship. And and when I'm talking about worship, I'm not talking, I've said this over and over in this series, I'm not talking about what we do here for the first 20 minutes of our time together. That's important and that's great and we all love it and receive life from it. But when I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about a life that's infused with thanksgiving, that's infused with submission to God, that's infused with obedience to His Word, that's infused with humility before Him. That's what I'm talking about. That's what our journey looks like. And we place no hope, we place no trust in our own works on this journey. We, take, uh, we place no hope or trust in our abilities or our worthiness. Rather, we rejoice that it is Christ who has brought us on this road. You did not stumble onto this road because you're smart enough to find it. Jesus brought you here. If you're on, the, if you're on this highway, he was the on-ramp. Jesus brought you here. And you know what the great thing about that reality is? If Jesus got you on the highway, Jesus is going to keep you safe on the highway. He is going to preserve you. He is going to to watch over you as you look to Him. Now, though we're only four psalms into this series of 15, we've already seen, if you're paying attention, we've already seen a steady progression upward. Let me give you an example of this. In, In Psalm 120, if you'll recall several weeks ago, we lamented that we lived in these trying surroundings in the valley of sin. It was just like, oh, woe to me that I live among the tents of, of Kedar. And, 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 you know, it was this idea that we're not where we want to be. And then in, in Psalm 121, we cast our eyes toward the final lofty destination. I'll lift up my eyes to the hills from where, where my help comes from. And we recognized that our security, as I said just a moment ago, was found only in Christ. In Psalm 122 last week, we took pleasure looking forward to the house of the Lord. And we understood that it's made up, this house of the Lord is made up, as Peter tells us, by all of those with whom we are now journeying. And our eyes have been fixedly firm, or firm fixedly rather, uh, 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 I can't talk today, fixed firmly uh, ahead of us. And, and so this, eye, this theme of where our eyes are in this journey is repeated again today. Remember how Psalm 121 a couple of weeks ago began. It said this, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So on this journey... We've had a longing for the house of the Lord. And we've had a heightened desire for his presence. And it's just grown and grown while we've been traveling this road. But in the beginning of our psalm today, I want you to see this. I wanted to give you that Psalm 121.1 again, because something has changed. Again, we're talking about lifting up our eyes. But there's a subtle difference. In, In the beginning of our psalm today, we are literally narrowing our focus. 
We're desiring not only to see God's dwelling place in the grandeur of the hills or on the temple on Mount Zion, but we want to see God himself in majesty. It's not some representation of himself being the temple. We want to see he himself. Look at what Psalm 123 says again. Verse 1, to you, not to the hills, to you, I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens, in case there was any doubt about who he was talking about. We want to see Jesus like Isaiah saw him in Isaiah chapter 6. He said he saw him high and lifted up and the train of his glorious robe filled the temple and cherubim and seraphim were around about him crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We want to see him speak and shake the foundations of the place where we are. And command that his flaming coal touch our lips and remove our sin. That's what this journey is all about. It's not going to a building. It's not going as glorious as that building was or even the representation of it through us is today. We are going to God himself. And that's our hunger. That's our desire. And so at the first... We cast our gaze to the hills, the earthly representation of his dwelling place. Only to notice when we did that, that God is much bigger than any conception we have ever had of his dwelling. Solomon, let me tell you what I mean by that. Solomon, the one who built the temple in Jerusalem, said this on the day of its dedication. In 1 Kings 8.27, he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Solomon builds this house laden with gold, all kinds of beauty and majesty, and the glory of the Lord filled it on the day it was dedicated. And yet Solomon stands there with some level of frustration in his spirit as he looks at it. He said, this is not enough. This could never contain the God for whom it was built. I got to ask you, as I have reflected on this very reality myself, how long has it been since you've been filled with such a hunger for his power, such a desire for his intervention, such a longing for his beauty that you would lift your eyes of faith just to get a glimpse of him enthroned in the heavens. How often are we truly moved by a thirst for his nearness that we cry out for such a vision? The writer of Psalm 121 remembered that his help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth, that he never sleeps, but is the keeper of Israel. Oh, that we would stir ourselves to remember these things as he did. Psalm 34, 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I love the word magnify. Most of you have had an experience with a telescope, a microscope, a magnifying glass. And and when you magnify something, 
you, you put it under the, the, whatever you're using to magnify it, and it appears a lot bigger. It doesn't actually make it bigger. It doesn't make the thing you're looking at bigger. But you see it as it is in all of its detail, in all of its intricacy. And worship is lifting our eyes to God to see Him as He really is. To see Him as big and powerful and loving and glorious towards us. And that's how the writer of this psalm saw Him. He saw Him enthroned in the highest heaven. He didn't see Him as something incidental just to His life or to His Jewish religion. But He saw Him reigning in holiness and and more importantly able to hear and respond with compassion for His children so far beneath Him. What what had happened, the transformation that happened in him that needs to happen in a lot of us is that God had become personal to him and he saw himself in intimate relationship with God. So how do you arrive at a place where you see God like this, where where your eyes are enabled to be lifted to the, the throne in heaven and see God like this? Well, this is... Kind of the the part where I have to say deal or no deal because we can only see God like this, according to our text today, by great humility. What do I mean by that? It's simply put, to see God enthroned, you must first see yourself as dethroned. That's the ultimate first step of seeing God in power in your life. In our hearts, we cannot occupy a place higher than God or even a place that's on equal footing for Him. Now, if you stop just a second, you'll see how absolutely absurd that is. Isaiah said this, to whom, or speaking for God and prophetically, he said, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. And we now let me be real honest here. None of us are saying, wait, what? I'm not like God. I'm not above God. Nobody here is doing that. Theoretically, we all know this. We, every one of us knows that we are not like God. If I were to ask you, as I did earlier about raising your hands, if I said, okay, I want to see hands of anyone here who feels superior to or even equal to God, no one, I'm confident, would dare answer that in the affirmative. No one would say, well, I kind of do sometimes, you know. Don't we all? Sometimes I'm not talking about that first kind of religious answer that per, uh, that kind of percolates up to the top of you when I ask you about feeling superior to or equal to God. What I'm speaking of is the attitudes of our hearts and the actions that result that often betray how we really feel. Have you ever noticed how your own words can be so deceptive sometimes? Anybody honest enough to admit that? That we can say all the right answers and our heart is in all the wrong places. So what, do I'm ta- what am I talking about, about having God in the wrong place in the hierarchy of life? Well, to disobey with excuses, God's express commands written in the Scriptures or 
his promptings of your conscience is literally, please hear me, is literally to enthrone yourself above God. Because you say publicly in a moment of worship like this, you say that he is Lord, that he's boss, that he's master. And yet when he commands and you fail to obey, you are literally vetoing what he has ordered in order to avoid discomfort or inconvenience. So when you find yourself clinging to unforgiveness because you don't know what the other person did, or being stingy because you don't want to just be in giving handouts to somebody who's going to misuse it, or you find yourself vindictive or lustful or prayerless or envious or having a mouth filled with gossip, you, which you don't ever misunderstand what's happening in the nature of sin. You're actually asserting your authority over God's authority. But here, in this psalm, we're being reminded to lift our eyes. Think about the imagery of that. To lift our eyes. We're lifting it, uh, we're lifting our eyes rather away from our petty desires. We're lifting our eyes away from our simple concerns. We're lifting our eyes away from our ourselves as the masters of our own destiny. And we're looking intently narrowly focused on the sovereign, the true sovereign of the universe. And dare I say, the only true sovereign of the universe. And we recognize him. He's not just in heaven, he's enthroned in heaven. John Newton, the guy who wrote the most famous Christian hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, said this. He said, they are the happiest Christians who have the lowest thought of themselves and, and in whose eyes Jesus is the most precious and glorious. Now, I just told you from the very wise mind of John Newton is entirely and 100% counter to the voices of today. Your self-esteem is the most important thing. You do you. You know, you get that all the time. But John Newton is here saying, he's saying the happiest Christian Raise your hand. I keep doing this, but raise your hand if you want to be a happy Christian. Raise your hand. The happiest Christians are the ones who have the lowest thought of themselves and in whose eyes. Now, that doesn't mean just like a martyr attitude. The ones who just, oh, you know, I'm Eeyore. I'm going around. Nothing good ever happens to me. That sort of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. Because you trade this high and lofty thought of yourself for the most precious and glorious thoughts, John Newton says, about Jesus. It's not to think of yourself as scum. What it means is to elevate Jesus so highly in your mind and in your affections that you don't even care anymore where you stand in the hierarchy. Because you have the treasure, the delight of your soul. The pearl of great price has been given to you. And this kind of humility is evident in verse 2 of this very short psalm. Uh, Verse 2 says, Behold... As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. The servants of God, I love this, are seen as male and female. So there's no, this is not a 
men-only scripture, women-only scripture. They're male and female, includes everybody. And they're both in a posture of complete submission and waiting patiently on the Lord for one thing, to dispense mercy. That's what they want. They're watching the Lord to see when he is going to release his mercy. God is enthroned, but the psalmist portrays his worshipers very differently than the God who is enthroned. He portrays them as humble domestic servants. He's literally depicting God's people as household slaves belonging fully to God. Now, three more times in this passage, the imagery of eyes becomes very important in the text. In verse 1, the big picture is that the eyes were lifted to see God enthroned. But here in verse 2, their eyes have narrowed even further. They're not just looking at God in the heavens enthroned. Their eyes have narrowed in focus. They've locked on their focus. And, and they're not looking at some giant glorious throne with attendant angels, but their eyes have focused on the hands of their master. And there are so many things to extract from this. I'm going to give you three In ancient times, servants in the Near East were trained to comply with their master's desires communicated by the simple gesture of a hand, not with spoken words. So tea would be brought, dishes would be cleared, a bed or a bath prepared. If the servant diverted his eyes from his master's hand, even for a moment, a command would be missed. They wouldn't see it. They wouldn't know what they were supposed to do. And what do we learn from this? We learn that we have to train ourselves to look both attentively and obediently to our Lord's hands. We have to be ready to speak or to serve or even lay down our lives when he gives the order, no matter how subtly it comes to us either through the clear revelation of Scripture or just by the evidence of where He has placed us or where He leads us. And this kind of attentiveness, if we were to live this way, this kind of attentiveness would result in increased joy in all of us. And it would benefit everyone around us where we live, where we work, where we play. And it would, more than that, more than all of that, it would actually be demonstrable proof of our love for the Lord Jesus. How do I know that? Because Jesus said it. John 14, 15, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if my eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, watching for the motions of his hand, through Scripture and, and, and through the, 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 the heart of compassion and wherever I'm at, then I'm going to miss His commands and I can't obey what I miss. So that's the first thing. Second of all, being slaves, any provision that was necessary for living would come from the master's hand. You know, slaves don't produce for themselves, then go get stuff from the master. It all comes from the master. So food, clothing, shelter, servants, in a house, would expectantly wait for the things that they needed to be provided for the master. You need new clothes, it's got to come through the master. You need food, it's got to come through the master. You need uh, shelter, it's got to come through the master. And we too must happily adopt a posture of awaiting every good thing from the hand of God. 
Some of us are terrible at waiting and terrific at scheming. And, and God is calling us to be patient, to watch his hand, and to wait until, as the Bible tells us in this text, until he pours out mercy upon us. It's never a righteous thing to leave our post of service to find our own supply. It's our master's job to provide the things we need, and we have to trust him to do it. Doesn't James tell us this? James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from one direction, from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That means God is always in the posture, is always in the position of being a provider for his people. And we must never be afraid that God will leave us without the things that we need. He tells, Jesus tells us in the Gospels, that God is a God who loves to give good gifts to his children. And then there's one more thing. Lastly, a servant watched his master's hands because that's where discipline came from. Any deviation from the master's will or anything that brought him displeasure would bring wrath. And we too must watch for the master's discipline. Now, we're not too comfortable with master-slave imagery, and I understand it. And so this could cause us to be very unnerved by what I just said. But what I want you to hear is that the discipline that we receive from God is not the harsh treatment of a tyrannical slave owner. But it's that, it's the discipline, Hebrews 12 tells us, of a loving father. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says in verse 10. It says, For our parents disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, God disciplines us, for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. For the moment when it's happening, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to all who have been trained by it. The gentle discipline of the Lord saves us from the tyranny, not of another master, but the tyranny of ourselves. That's what the discipline of the Lord is for. And it, and it is proof of the Father's love for us. Hebrews 12.8 says that without God's discipline, we can only consider ourselves to be illegitimate children and not true sons or daughters. It's a good thing to be shaped by God's disciplining hand. Now, I didn't say it feels good. Even the writer of Hebrews said that. At times, it's not pleasant. At the time, rather, it's not pleasant. But later, it yields fruit. It, re- it yields produce. It changes us. But there's even more to this. We're not done yet. We're not going to move on yet. There's more to this. Look again at verse 2 with me. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. In all of these things, God's direction, God's provision and discipline, our desire is always the same, to discover God's mercy. 
When we watch his hands attentively to receive our marching orders, it's with a heart full of love because of his mercy that he's poured out on us. When we look for his provision, we see God's practical mercy in providing our daily bread. When we look to his hands for discipline, however, we find something very different than what we expected. See, many of us, Right now, in this room, I promise you, I know this to be fact 100%, many of us still fear if we are to cast our eyes on the hands of the master, just like those ancient slaves, that when we look at his hands, we're going to see a, a whip in his hand. Or that maybe his, fist will form, his hand will form a fist to strike us for all of our sin and all of our folly. We're convinced Knowing the, the, the just frail nature of our faith, we're convinced that God has to be disappointed. He has to be frustrated. And I'll bet he's even angry with us. We fear that we've reached the limits of his mercy. How can we wait for mercy? We've tapped that one out. But just look, if you will, at his hands. Because when by faith you look to his hand, you'll see that it is definitely not balled into a fist. It's definitely not clutching some weapon. His hand is open, and it's reaching out to you. And as your eyes focus on that hand reaching to you, you're going to see that in the very center of it, you see the distinct print of a nail that was placed there. Put through that hand. And then you will be shocked and in total awe and amazement when you realize that that nail was placed there not for his own crime, but for yours. That God himself took our place And the wrath that we deserved from him when we knew that the fist was coming, when the whip would soon lay across our back, what we found is that the fist landed on God's own face and the whip tore his back wide open. And so we looked to God by faith, In that hand, those hands that were pierced, we look to God knowing that not one of his good promises has failed. And that his wounded hands have been opened as a refreshing fountain of mercy for which we cry, which we know we don't deserve, and for which the the Heavenly Father will freely, freely give. We cry out to him for mercy, not with the trembling knees of slaves, but with the confident hearts of sons and daughters. And we are, we're assured that he will hear our cry and have mercy on us. Verse 3 says, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has been has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Contempt is the feeling 
that a person is beneath consideration, that they are worthless, that they deserve scorn. And and what I want you to see in this this reference to contempt (laughs) is that you and I were created in God's image to reflect and to represent his glory on the earth. That was God's original design. Those were the specs with which the great architect made you. But when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, he did so with utter contempt for their true identity as the image of God. And sin that was spawned there in the garden has held us all in contempt ever since. We've been held in contempt Though we were created in the image of God, we have not lived as the image of God because we've been held in contempt. Sin robs us of our true personhood by making us a display of all that is ugly and all that is corrupt instead of shining forth the glory of our Creator. Sin makes us God's enemies instead of His friends. Sin converts us into vessels of shame and dishonor instead of vessels of glory as God had intended for us to be. And the psalmist, thinking of this kind of contempt, says that they have had more than enough of this contempt. The Hebrew word for for more than enough here means that they are saturated. They are soaked with contempt. They're beyond full of contempt. And they want to be restored to their high calling in God. Think about what sin has done to you. Sin has made you look like, feel like, act like a pervert while you visit that website one more time. But God wants to restore you to your royal position as the image bearer of almighty God. Greed, materialism, envy has turned you into a heartless beast caring only about yourself. But God wants to radiate his generous love through you to everyone around you. Fear has seized you. It's paralyzed you. But God wants to restore his courage to you so that you can fight his battles and win. Only Christ's blood can wash away the contempt of sin. Your religious diligence will not do it. So whether you are a Christian or not, whether you believe you're a Christian or not, the solution is the same. Can I just invite you this morning to come to the cross of Jesus? Come to the cross of Jesus and watch as those nail-scarred hands offer you real freedom, offer to, offer to restore to you your real, true identity, offer to, to bring back what was stolen from you. And you say, well, I do and I fail. Keep coming back. Keep coming back to the cross. In fact, why don't you just live there? Live at the foot of the cross. Keep your eyes, as the psalmist said, lifted up at the Savior who has paid your price, who is by your mercy. 
and know that there is no end. The Bible says, great is the Lord. His mercy endures forever. Keep coming back. Don't be impatient. His mercy will never stop flowing there. The psalmist also describes in this last verse of this passage, the scorn of those who are at ease and the contempt of the proud. Do not be surprised if in this world people look down on you because you're clinging to the cross of Christ. That is part of the deal. It goes with the territory. Don't lose heart when they mock and when they sneer and when it looks like everything is going their way and not your way. Because you're not looking to them. You're looking to the one who is enthroned in the heavens. You're looking to the one who paid your price on the cross. Psalm 27 talks about one of the most horrible rejections anyone could experience, and yet the grace in the middle of it. It says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Friends may bail. Bosses and co-workers may scoff. The whole world may hold you in contempt and scorn. But what harm can come of it if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? God has pledged his allegiance to you because you are in Christ. He will never abandon you. Have faith in him to be your eternal defender. I love Psalm 118.6. It says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So in closing, may I please encourage you this morning, don't wait. No matter where you are in your spiritual life, if you've never trusted Jesus, do so today. Be restored to your true identity. If you have trusted God and find yourself wrestling with all kind of idols and temptations and distractions, turn your eyes heavenward. Lost, saved, turn your eyes heavenward. And you do this not by some vain imagination, not by trying to understand God by your imagination, but he has revealed himself to you in clarity in this book. He has showed you who he is. He's revealed himself to you through this book. Learn this book. Dig into this book. Do not neglect this book. Let the scripture remind you that Christ Jesus is enthroned, that he is unthreatened, and that he is absolutely in control. And wait Right where you are in the midst of your trouble, wait for his mercy as you gaze at his hands. And he will deliver you from the contempt of sin. And he'll keep you safe in the midst of scorn and the pride of those who do not believe. Cry out to him in the middle of all your troubles. Have mercy upon us, O God. Have mercy upon us. Today, as every Sunday, we're going to come to the table and there is nothing, no ordinance of the church that God has given us to give us a better visualization of the hands of the Lord. Broken, poured out, broken body, blood poured out. We celebrate that in the bread and the cup. 
If you are here and you're a believer in Jesus, then welcome to the table. And as, as you have been a recipient of mercy, come with rejoicing in your heart. If you are not yet a believer, don't come. This is not going to mean anything to you. For you, this glorious supper for us is a piece of bread, cup of juice, nothing more. It's not going to wash your soul. It's not going to do anything for you until you place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cannot encourage you. We're not trying to bar you from something. We're actually trying to invite you to something. And so if you want to put your, play, put your trust in Jesus today, you just come talk to me after, your service, after the service, and I will be glad to talk to you however long it takes to help you to see what God wants to do in your life. For the rest of you, I'm going to ask you to stand and come forward and to receive the elements from the, our servers here. And after everyone has received, then we will uh, return to our seats and take these together. Joy belongs to us that Christ has given us this ordinance that we can have such a tangible reminder of his grace to us. I don't know about you, but life can be hard sometimes, and, and I can be on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, not at all thinking about grace. And then the Lord invites me back to his table, and I go, oh, yeah, there's something way more important in my life than any distraction that has tried to derail me. Yeah, there was a body that was broken for me. There was blood that was poured out for me. And the ultimate, the ultimate mercy from the hand of Christ, as I said, was when they were pierced, when he was wounded for your transgressions, when he was bruised for your iniquity, when the chastisement that brought him peace was placed upon him. Surely he bore our weaknesses and our griefs, and, and yet Christ, because of his obedience, has been exalted by the Father to the highest place and given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And so we have got a lot to celebrate this morning. A lot of joy because we have we cry out for mercy and we have received mercy. And in the crying and receiving, we have a promise that tomorrow, guess what, is good news. When you need mercy, you're going to have it. You're going to have it. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this bread in remembrance of our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup... It's the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the Lord's death this morning together. Thank you, God, for amazing grace from your son, Jesus, that has rescued us from all of our sin and has secured a place for us in heaven. 
We love you, Lord. If you would place your hands in a, in a receiving posture, I would just want to pronounce this benediction of blessing over you. May you grow, this is 2 Peter 3.18, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.